Well, church, let me invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and uh, we're going to begin our time in God's Word this morning, verse 21, and if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 882, and if you would like a Bible, you could take that Pew Bible as your own, and that'd be our gift to you. Uh, today, is, it's an, it has a lot to cover, um, just to give you a heads up. That's probably not what you want to hear. Sorry about that. Um, there's like four sermons in this passage, um, so... I'll do my best to get through it. I, we won't be able to get to all of it. It is so rich and deep and wonderful and glorious and challenging and convicting and encouraging. And, and uh, let's, let's see if we can do all that today. Wouldn't that be cool? And so uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. Hear now the word of God. But behold, the hand of him betray, who betrays me Is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another which of them it could be who is doing who's going to do this. A dispute arose among them as to which was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Our Father, we're thankful for your word which we can consider this morning. We ask that you would pour out your blessings upon us and that we might understand you more, what you do and how you respond to even our sin. I think this is a passage about sin and grace. And so help us to see both truths and help it to change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've been paying attention much to what's happening in the world, but it kind of strikes me that, uh, maybe it does you as well, that 
the, the presidential election's already kind of begun. Um, I don't know if you get that feeling at all, but I think it was this week, wasn't it? It's uh, another TV personality caused a national stir at her acceptance of a, some fancy gold award and a fancy Hollywood party. And uh, her speech actually was rather moving, I thought, and uh, not only moved me, it was moving to a number of people, and it caused people across the nation to speculate that this individual might be running for president in three years from now, right? And I wonder, what, it, what must it be like to, to have your name just kind of all over the nation, that everyone's having these conversations about you and, 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 and what you might do and how you might impact the nation? Clearly, you need to be, uh, have achieved some sort of greatness to get to this point, to have everyone talking about you. And I wonder if this kind of greatness is, is, is as great as it's presented to be. I love the story, and I've shared it with you in the past, where John Wesley encounters greatness as he's in the, in the king's dressing room, the king of England. He wrote about that, writing, I was in the robe chamber adjoining the house of the lords when the king put on his robe. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And, and is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford? A blanket around his shoulders so heavy and cumbersome he can scarce move under it? A huge heap of borrowed hair? A few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head? Alas, what a bauble is human greatness. And even this will not endure I think there's probably a great deal of truth in Wesley's statement there, and yet it seems to me that greatness is the aspiration of so many today, that people want to be great, and that people want to be wealthy and powerful, and they, they want to be, people want to be famous. And in fact, I think one difference today with maybe what it used to be is, is fame used to be connected with some act of greatness, right? You go to the moon, and you get famous, you run a four-minute mile, and you get famous. But today, I think the aspiration is just to be famous for fame's sake. I just want everyone to know me. I want people to know my name. I want to get all the likes on Facebook and all the rest and all the followers on Twitter. We used to call that uh, narcissism, I think. Right? Remember, remember the day when that used to be discouraged? Remember the guy, narcissist, who's walking down the, the path, taking a stroll and sees the reflection in the water, and he can't, I mean, he's just overwhelmed with how glorious he is, and, and, and in fact, he's so, so addicted to his own reflection, so enamored with his beauty, that he just stares at himself until he died. I think that probably would be a good way to describe much of our culture today, that we are preoccupied with ourselves. The most important person is me. We focus on ourselves and my freedom. I need to be true to myself. I need to set my mind on something and accomplish it. We, I, I need to do what I want to do with no focus on how that might impact others or our nation or our neighbors. We're consumed with ourselves. We want other people to be consumed with us as well. And I tell you, though this seems to be predominant in our culture today, it's not a modern phenomenon, as you see in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which one was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, I think I could say with a great deal of accuracy that this is probably the dumbest conversation ever had, right? 
you have, you have 12 men in a room with God, okay? Almost sounds like a joke, doesn't it? There's 12 guys in, I mean, literally God is at the table with them, and they're arguing which one is better than the other. I mean, I don't think, the, I don't think there could be any, any more of a stupid conversation than this. And, and, and you kind of want Jesus to say, well, this, I find this interesting. I like to get in on this uh, conversation. Uh, let, now, let's, let me think. Which one of us, I know it's pretty sure it's one of us, which one of us created everything? Oh, yeah, that was me, right? <laughs> and uh, did, didn't one of us feed 5,000 people with a couple sardines? Now, who was that again? I forgot. Oh, yeah, that was me again. And I remember when that, we came to that dead guy, and one of us spoke to him, and he got up and walked around and became alive. Now, who was that? Oh, that was me, of course. But you got 12 guys in a room with God, and where are they focused? On themselves. Is that not extraordinary? They are in love with their own reflection. I wonder if we are tempted to the same sin today. And sometimes even, believe it or not, this would be hard to believe, but it's true, that sometimes we gather on Sunday mornings to worship God, and we're not focusing on God but ourselves. Can you believe that? Sometimes we might even think, I don't like this song, or it's too cold in here, or it's too hot in here, or why does a sermon have to be so short, right? And we're, 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 we're focused on ourselves, and we gather. Can you, can you imagine? God is in this room, and we gather in his honor. We come as the people of God, redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we come thinking about me. And we, too, are tempted to be in love with our own reflection. That's why I think this word is so helpful for us this morning. Of course, the context, if you remember last week, that Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with them, and, and uh, it wasn't much of a celebration, was it? it? It feels, I think, if I'm reading it correctly, more like a funeral. And he begins to say, this is the last meal I'm going to eat before I suffer, before I die. But my, listen, my body's going to be broken, and my blood is going to be spilled And then it gets worse, as we'll see today. He announces that even in this group, there's a betrayer in their midst that's out to kill me. And then you get this shameful, heated argument about their relative greatness. And that's followed by the announcement that their courageous leader is going to deny Jesus within a matter of hours. And then in one last effort to prepare them, they're so dull, it seems to me that Jesus is exasperated and shaking his head. He says in verse 38, enough of this. Right? It's just enough. You have in this passage defection, dissension, denial, dullness. And Jesus will be abandoned and forsaken by everyone. And those who should stand by his side instead will focus on themselves. What we have here is a catalog of the sins of Jesus' friends. Do you consider yourself a friend of Jesus, a follower of the Lord? It might be helpful for you to consider this catalog. Have God search your own heart. God, am I tempted towards these sins? I think this is a message especially for those who aspire or find themselves in leadership in 
to the church, those who teach Sunday school classes and serve as deacons and head ministries and, and serve as elders and pastors and community group leaders and all the rest. You might want to pay a special attention to this. And, of course, not only the sin that is exposed here, but you'll see every time Christ responds with grace. Just unfailing commitment to you. And so consider this morning four sins of the insiders and the grace of Christ. We begin by seeing the desertion of Judas followed with the grace of Jesus. Number one, the desertion of Judas. Look in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus is in effect saying, I'm going to die tomorrow. And the person who's going to betray me is bringing this all about. He's actually sitting in this room with us right now. And this must have been a stunning revelation. I mean, these men have been with Jesus night and day, week after week, month after month. For three years, they have lived with him. They have been with him. They must have thought, this is impossible. This is the family. And yet Jesus says, no, he's here. He's going to betray me. And then he announces uh, this, this powerful verse in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You notice, you might want to note verse 22, because it is a very succinct affirmation of both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see that? It goes, it's, listen, the, the betrayal of Jesus has been determined, he says. By whom? By God. It goes as it has been determined, and in the same verse, he says, woe to the one who brings it about. In other words, divine sovereignty does not absolve humans from responsibility. God said, this is the plan of God, and yet woe to the man who betrays me. Of course, we know that man, as we saw last week, was Judas. Remember why he betrayed Jesus? Well, they agreed to give him money. He's He's greedy. That Judas follows Jesus because it pays. Right? That's why he was committed to Christ. It profits him. It brings blessings to him. But if, if following Jesus no longer pays, then, then Judas is going to, well, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I'm going to find some other source of blessing, some other force, source of profit. And I'll tell you, the sin here of Judas is very, very common. There seems to me two kinds of religions in this world. You might want to group all the world's religion in one pile, and that all of them say, in a sense, the same thing. If you obey God, he will accept you and bless you. Obedience leads to divine acceptance and blessing. It almost leads, uh, they might not put it this way, but it seems is what they're arguing, it puts God in our debt. Listen, I obey him, I'm doing this for you, therefore you owe me this kind of life and this kind of blessing. And you got, on the other hand, the gospel, which says, I have been accepted through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and no merit of my own, and therefore what? I obey, and I owe him everything. But you notice, both religions, if you will, both lead to obedience, but for two radically different reasons. Both types of people sit side by side each other on Sunday morning. Both types of people read their Bibles. Both types of people pray, but they, they do so for, for opposite reasons. Why do you obey God? Why do you follow him? You, you, you know how you know, it's usually revealed why when trouble comes in your life, when trial happens. Remember the story of Job? 
Remember, remember God talking to the devil and saying, have you, have you noticed Job, how he loves me and how he obeys me and how he, he, just, he just wants to please me? And the devil says, does Job serve God for nothing? Right? In other words, you know why he's serving you, God? Because it, it pays him. He's, his service for you is actually getting you to serve him. He's, he's using you, God. And you take away the blessings, and I'll show you, Job will drop you in a second. Right? Of course, by God's grace, he does not. But it is the trial that will expose why we obey God. It is the difficult times when the storm comes, right? Every time you go through a Job experience, every time things get bad and, and difficult, God may be doing many things in your life, but at the very least, God is saying, why do you follow me? Why do you love me? Why are you mine? And Judas was clearly God's because Jesus, as long as it brought blessings upon him, in fact, you notice, I, I love how Jesus exposes this, and then he responds in grace. You, you notice how Jesus raises this question. I find it very interesting. In verse 21, he says, one of, in a sense, one of you will betray me. Now, the question I have is, why not point him out? Why not say, and it's Judas. There's the scumbag right there. That's the guy, right? He just says, listen, I want you to know there's someone here at this table who's going to betray me. What, why not point out the one? Remember Nathan, he shows up at David's palace, and he doesn't say, hey, David, one of us has sinned, right? He says, you're the man. But Jesus doesn't do that here. What's going on? And I, I think there are probably two reasons. I'm pretty confident in the first, somewhat confident in the second. Both are demonstrations of his grace. I think, I think at least one reason he wants the apostles, and I think he wants you and I to look into your own heart, Right? He doesn't point him out because he wants everyone to ask the question, is it me? And it seems that's what they're doing in verse 23. They begin to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Another gospel says they actually asked, each one says, is it I? And I wonder if there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. Right? That we follow God to get his blessings and we, we get upset when he stops giving them to us. And we might even think, God, you know what? Listen, I'm teaching Sunday school for you. I'm raising my family. I pay my taxes. I, I drive around the speed limit and all the rest. And, and this is how you treat me, right? Do you ever feel like that? That's the heart of Judas. I think we need to be aware of that. Do you follow Jesus to get things or do you follow Jesus to get Jesus? One of my favorite things to do is, as you know uh, by now, if you've been around for about a week or two, is I like to go backpacking. I like mountains. And it, it, to be honest, if um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but if they paid to me to backpack, I probably this would be the last sermon you'd hear, and off I would go. Um, but I don't know where to send my resume to the backpacking company. But anyways, I love backpacking. I love to strap, take my kids with me, strap a pack, forty pounds on my back, go find some mountains, walk for about four days, and do forty miles. And the thing about backpacking is uh, your feet really hurt when you go. I mean, your feet hurt a lot, and your knees hurt a lot, and your your hips hurt a lot, and and the food is terrible because you're carrying everything you need to eat. It's all dehydrated, and none of it's good. And you're almost always either hot or cold, but never comfortable. And uh, and to make matters worse. The sleep is just awful. You wake up a hundred times in the middle of the night wondering if that thing sniffing at your tent is going to eat you and all the rest. And, uh, and, and this, this, is, this is backpacking. And some might say, well, why in the world would you do that? I mean, is there like a pot of money up on top of the mountain? What are you doing? No. I do it because it fills my soul. I do it because I've, 
I, I get out there and, and joy floods into my heart. I don't do it because it gives me something. I do it for itself. Do you follow Jesus to get things or do you follow Jesus because you want Jesus? I want more Jesus. I think that's what he's trying to expose in grace. But I, I said he's, I'd say there might be two reasons why he doesn't point him out. The other, this is maybe a little speculative, so no, don't put this in your notes. How about that, okay? Don't, but I, I, I wonder, is he graciously reaching out to Judas? I, I wonder if, listen, if, if he doesn't bring this up, Judas is just going to go ahead and betray him, right? If he doesn't say woe to the man, Judas is off to betray him. But if he says, Judas, you're a traitor, that, that's not going to bring about repentance either. I, I wonder if he wants to, he's saying, Judas, I know you're not, you're not fooling me. I know, I know it's you. I know what's going to happen. But I'm not going to shatter you. I'm not going to trample upon you because I want, I want to give you an opportunity to repent. I want to convict you and not run you over. And so I know I'm just not going to point you out in front of everybody because I, he's, I think he's being gentle with him and trying to get him, give him one last opportunity perhaps to turn. Well, they, 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 they start arguing evidently, and they, they, you can imagine, I think, they're arguing, well, no, I'm not going to betray him. I mean, after all, I'm the most committed to Jesus. And then someone, of course, says, well, you're not, what are you talking about? You're the most committed to Jesus? Don't you remember such and such? And, and that, I'm clearly the most committed. He took me up to the mountain. What are you talking about? I was on the mountain, and I you know, walked on water. I'm the most committed. And, and soon this argument dissolves, devolves into this, this debate about who's the greatest, as you consider, secondly, the discord of the apostles in the grace of Jesus. Look in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So here they are having this debate. And now if you think, haven't, haven't I heard this before? Haven't I, have they done this before? You, you would be right. It was in Luke chapter 9 that they were arguing which one was the greatest. And Jesus grabbed a child and put it on his lap and said the greatest needs to be the least. And then, of course, there was the other time when James and John's mom came to Jesus and said, can my boy sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into the kingdom? Of course, infuriated all the other apostles who wanted those seats. And then there was the other time, right, where um, Jesus asked them what they were talking about. Remember that time? And they kept silent, the Bible says, for on the way they argued with one another about who was the greatest. You see, some men like to talk about sports, and other men like to talk about politics. The apostles like to talk about their relative greatness over one another, right? And here they go again. And we might think, well, silly apostles, aren't we glad we're not like them, well, we may not argue about our greatness, but I think quite often there's something in our heart that wants people to think we are great, want people to know how smart we are, want people to know how talented we are, how athletic, how musical we are. We want people to admire how we keep our home or raise our children or how we can teach Sunday school class. I think it's, there's something in our heart that's tempted to position ourselves so people think highly of us, maybe even better of us than, than our natural abilities would warrant. And if that's in your heart as it is mine, you ought to hear the words of Jesus in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He said, this is what the world does. The world evaluates greatness by authority, 
The world evaluates greatness by power and by wealth and by fame. And so the world looks at the billionaire businessmen and the TV personalities and the movie stars and the athletes, and the world says, those people are great. Look at, look at him. He could catch a ball. Isn't he great, right? And look, he could, he could an act. And he, isn't he great? And Jesus says, no, that's the way the world is. But I'm afraid that's the way the church is as well. We're tempted to do the same, are we not? Uh, it was just, I think, last week that my wife uh, was signing up for a homeschooling conference and is off to this big conference to help her learn how to educate our children and uh, there are a number of seminars that I trust will be very helpful for her, but the, there are a couple keynote speakers, and one is an NFL football player, and the other is an actor. And, and I'm sure these are godly men, and I'm sure they want to use their platform to spread the fame of King Jesus, but I, don't, I do not know what, how your ability to catch a ball and run around in tights for a couple hours on Sunday morning, or your ability to pretend you're somebody else and convince you, qualifies you to teach other uh, homeschooling families how to educate kids. I don't get it, to be perfectly honest. And again, I'm sure these are godly men, but why, why do we have an NFL fo- football player speaking? And I'll tell you why. Because he's famous. And we think, well, he's, he's, he's famous, and therefore he's great. And Jesus says, you're, you're not to be like that. Look what he says in verse 26. But not so with you, he says. Rather, let the greatness among you become, at, the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. You see, Jesus created a new society where status means nothing and wealth means nothing and, and, and power means nothing and your ability to catch a ball doesn't mean anything in the kingdom of God. In fact, rather than aspiring to get people to serve you, Jesus says you should start serving them. Now, he's not saying you can't be a leader. He's not saying you can't own your business or, or make lots of money or become a professional athlete or anything. But he says as a leader, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to serve others. He says be the younger person in the relationship. Be the person that takes the difficult job that no one wants. Do the menial task that's beneath you, Jesus says. Serve. That's, Jesus says, you know what I think is great? I think those who serve are great. I think those who do menial jobs are great. Do you serve like that? If you do, it's Christ-like, as you see in verse 27. For who is greater one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am, I am among you as the one who serves. You, you see Christ's example. You see what he's doing? He's, he says, I'm serving you. God says, I'm the one who waits on tables. And this is not a God we would invent, right? We would invent a God that everyone, he's the one who sits at the table and everyone else serves you. Can I fill your glass, Lord? Can I do this for you? And Jesus says, no, listen, I want you to understand I'm the one who comes and I, I'm gonna serve you. Now, do you think about Christ and we've already established he's great, right? I mean, he created the universe, that's pretty good, right? He's, he never sinned. Not, like, not even a small one. I mean, he's the only perfect person ever to exist. He's fully devoted to God in every way, even sacrificing his life up to him. He's the greatest person who ever lived. If anyone deserves to be served, can we at least agree on this? It's Jesus. Right? It's Jesus. And yet he says, I'm the one who gets up, and I'm the one who waits on the table. 
and I've been doing it from the very beginning. I've been leading, and I've been teaching, and I've been feeding, and I've been healing, and I've been comforting, and I've been serving, and he's not going to stop. He's going to take him right to the cross, and he's going to serve you and I to the point of bearing our sin upon his shoulders as he dies, taking the wrath of God for me. He would serve us, even as we saw in Isaiah, by bearing our iniquities You see this grace? You see the grace Jesus is giving to these very selfish people. It hasn't stopped. You need help? Go to Jesus. You need wisdom? Go to Jesus. You need forgiveness? He's really good at that. Go to Jesus. He says, I'm happy to serve you. I want it. He seems like a dad with a a kid in some sense, doesn't he? Like you. You know, dads, moms, if your kids mess up and, and they come and say, Dad, I've, I've just made a mess of this situation. I just, I need your help. You know, what dad says, sorry, son, it's on you, right? You did it, deal with it, right? Not, not this kind of dad, God willing. I want to be the kind of dad who says, listen, I am here for you. No matter what you do, I am here for you. I, I, I want to help you. You're not a burden to me. I love you. That's the heart of Jesus. He says, come to me. He says, I will serve you. And if that's the way with Jesus, he says, that's the way I want to be with you. I want you to serve. In fact, he even gives more graces. You see in verse 28. You have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, he's talking to the apostles here, and, and he's saying I, that reference to sitting on thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel, I understand this, though not all agree that the 12 tribes there is a reference to the entire people of God, and the apostles will, in the coming kingdom of God will exercise unique authority over God's people. And, but this reference to, look, you're coming into a kingdom, and you're going to eat and drink at my table, that, the Bible tells us that's for everyone who's in Christ. We're all going to that marriage feast of the Lamb. Do you like feasts? Right? Anyone? You like dinner parties? You like good food? You like it when someone else pays for it? The Bible constantly pictures heaven as this feast. Christ is doing so here. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, greatness awaits you. It's already been secured for you, Christian. You're going to sit at the king's table one day. And so, listen, you, you might have a throne here on earth. I don't know. You, your office might even be in the shape of an oval, okay? And, and, and you might achieve greatness. I'll tell you, it's nothing compared to the seat you will get to sit at in the kingdom of God when the Lord invites you to his table. You, you, might, you might get all the praise here on earth. I'll tell you, it's nothing compared to the day in which you see the smiling face of Jesus with love in his eyes say to you, well done, Good and faithful, what is it? Servant. My servant. Well done. And, and you might exhaust yourself in service of the king for the 70, 80, whatever years he gives you. And you will have no regret on the day in which you meet King Jesus. And he says, welcome to my kingdom. I have a seat right here for you at my table. I wonder, are, are you a servant? Is that how your kings, your kids, excuse me, describe you? This mom is a servant, dad is a servant. Is that how your spouse would describe you? 
I wonder if the uh, uh, reason for the unreconciliation often between parents and children is because they don't heed Jesus' counsel. I wonder if, if one of the reasons why we see divorce is because we ignore what Jesus has said here. I mean, I, I, what, what, at least I've never heard of a, of a divorced family who said, listen, the, the man says, I'm going to serve her, and I, I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to outserve her. I'm just going to serve and serve and serve. And she says, oh, he just kept serving me and got so much, I just couldn't handle it, so I left him, right? I wonder if you ever think, I, I want to, I'm, listen, you go home, you say, I'm going to outserve my spouse because, because I want to be more like Jesus. And your spouse says, no, no, no. I want to be more like Jesus, so I'm going to outserve you. And, I'm gonna, and we begin to serve one another selflessly, taking the meaningful task as Christ is taking that. I wonder if that's how we live. I wonder if we live like that, what life would be like. I wonder if Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. I wonder if at work you're known as the person who cares for other people's needs. I wonder if in your neighborhood you're known as a servant. I wonder if you're forced to go one mile, you gladly go a second. I wonder if you're so overwhelmed with how you have been served in Christ, the idea of serving because it makes you more like Jesus fills you with joy and anticipation. I wonder if you would rather be served and be like Jesus, excuse me, serve and be like Jesus than, than be served and not be like Jesus. What's more important to your heart? I think greatness is being like Jesus. I think we ought to serve others in his name. In fact, I think we probably would do well to realize we're not as great as we think. You consider, thirdly, the denial of Peter and the grace of Jesus. I find this passage fascinating when Jesus says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You could imagine how intense this might be. Where Jesus says to, to Simon, Simon, you need to know something. Satan is after you. In fact, Satan has asked the father, he says, let me at him. Let me have him. He says, he'll drop you just like Judas. He wants to sift you like wheat, Jesus says. He wants to tear you to pieces, in other words. He wants to pick you apart. Not physically, of course, because you notice how Jesus responds in verse 20, uh, uh, 32. We know what, what Satan's after in light of Jesus' response. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, Satan wants to destroy your faith. And he has this, he says, Simon, he's got this big sieve with his wire mesh and he puts people in it and people will fall through that mesh into my hands as long as they let go of their faith. And he's gonna shake you and he's gonna thrash you. And, and when people are weak and worn and they just give up on God, they, they fall through into the waiting hands of the devil. But as long as they, they hold on, as long as they trust the Lord, they can't fall. He said, the devil wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy Peter's faith. He wants to destroy your faith. He doesn't care very much if you're wealthy or, or poor. He doesn't care if you're uh, uh, healthy or sick. As long as you'll turn on Christ. So if you'll abandon Christ for things, that pleases him. If, you, if he brings trouble upon you and you'll abandon Christ because Jesus no longer pays, that, that, that's what he's after. In fact, Peter would write about this in his own letter. He said, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Satan's after you. I think what Jesus said of Simon is true for us. Satan desi- Christian, Satan desires to have you. He wants to tear you apart. 
He, he is always in the shadows, and it is him who is tempting your heart to t- click on that, that pornographic website. That's the devil. And it is him whispering in your ear to remain bitter and resentful. And it is him who's encouraging you to blow up in anger when someone's driving too slow or someone has an unkind word. It's him who's pushing you to give up on a difficult relationship. That's the devil. It's him explaining to you you don't really need to worship with God's people. You could go on your own. He's been working from Jesus' day. He continues to work in our day. And I think he's particularly working on leaders. You look in verse 31 again. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. See that little footnote by the word you? You look down, and it's actually a plural. So he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you all. Right? He wants not just you. He wants the, the, the other ten. He's after you all. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you. That's singular. And what we see here is that, that the devil's not content with Judas. He's not even content with Peter. He wants to bring them all down. But the best way to do it is to tear down their leader. So Simon Peter, who's listed number one in all the lists of the apostles, the, the first among equals, he says, if I could get at this leader, I could bring down the rest. And I think he targets leaders. He goes after pastors. Goes after Sunday school teachers. You, see, you want to teach Sunday school? Just understand you're putting a bullseye on your back. He goes after community group leaders. He goes after deacons. He goes after ministry heads. He goes after heads of family. He want, Bring down the leader and the rest will fall according to the devil's mind. Wouldn't, wouldn't he love it if you took the next step in having that affair this week? Right? Wouldn't he love that? Wouldn't he love it to bring, bring one of your elders into an immoral relationship? And you might be tempted. I'm kind of tempted to say, well, not me. You know, I love my wife. I wouldn't do anything like that. Not me. You got the wrong guy, devil. And if you have that temptation, too, I would encourage you to consider verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Right? Peter's saying you got the wrong guy. You must be thinking of someone else. Because of all these guys, I'm the most committed. And I will die for you, Jesus. Notice Christ's response in verse 34. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Jesus is in effect saying to Peter, you're so self-absorbed and so overconfident that not only will you fail me, you're going to do it tonight. In fact, not only will you do it tonight, you're going, to, you're going to actually deny me. And not only will you deny me once or twice, you're going to deny me three times before the sun rises in order to save your own skin. Within hours, you're going to be exposed as a coward. And then you will know that one of the reasons you're following me is just for the same reason as Judas. You're following me because it brings blessing upon you, Peter. It brings prestige upon you. It brings profit into you. The irony is that Peter thinks by thumping his chest saying, Jesus, I'll never deny you. That actually is the the way in which the devil will get him to deny him. Because he will not come to Christ and say, oh, Lord, please help me. No, I don't want to. Anything but that. Is the opposite. He responds in pride. He gets defensive. I wonder if you ever do that. I wonder if you're ever accused of wrong. Someone lovingly comes and points out a weakness in your life. And rather than thinking about what they say, rather than prayerfully considering what they say, rather than repenting of the truth in what they say, you get defensive. Right? When in doubt, defend yourself. When in doubt, fight back. That's in my heart. Is that in yours? 
accusation comes, criticism comes, and what you just want to start fighting and protecting, that's Peter, isn't it? Christians, it's easy. It is easy to deceive yourselves. Do you understand that? That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 10, we need to stir, consider how we might stir one another up towards good deeds, right? The Bible says you need the church. In fact, you not only need the church, you need people to know you. You need to open yourself up. You need to be honest with people and not lie to them and tell them what's really going on in your life, that they might help you and push you towards Christ. And if you say, listen, I don't need those kind of relationships. I don't need the church. I don't need people knowing what's going on in my business. All I say to you is, hello. Simon. That's exactly what he was doing. He says, I don't need this, Lord. I'm good on my own. And Jesus says, you will deny me, but you will not utterly, aban- not utterly abandon me. And you know why? It's not because Peter is strong. It was Christ is faithful. He is gracious. Look in his grace in verse 32. But I have prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail. Satan wants you, but Simon, I've been praying for you, Right? You know what? Why why did Peter not turn into another Judas? I'll tell you. It's one reason. It's because Jesus prayed for him. I'm praying for you. You, you, So, listen. You're going to fail, but you won't utterly deny. You won't utterly reject me. In fact, you notice what he prays for. He he doesn't pray like us, does he? He doesn't pray, okay, well, you know, Simon, the devil wants you, but I I prayed to God, you know, let uh, just keep the devil away from him. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, well, listen, but Simon, I prayed and I asked God that you would be rich and have an easy, long, comfortable life and an early retirement and all the rest. What does he say? I pray that your faith may not fail. I pray that the Father would do whatever needs to be done to preserve your faith. And so Peter will not escape the devil's assault, but because Jesus prays for him, he's going to survive it. And Jesus prays for you too. Do you know that? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, He is at the right hand of God interceding for us. It says in Hebrews 7, he always lives to make intercession for us. We even saw that in Isaiah 53, that he intercedes for transgressors. In other words, Jesus doesn't stand back and see if you have enough strength to endure. Day and night, he's praying for us. He he keeps asking God to help us to endure, to keep our faith strong. So we don't avoid temptation and trial and difficulty, but because Jesus prays for us, we'll survive them. And we'll emerge even stronger, our faith stronger. God likes faith, you understand that? And he'll even use Satan to refine it. He, he, he likes faith because faith declares that God is trustworthy, even in trouble and trial. Faith says God is good. And so I think Jesus is praying for you. I think that's what the Bible says. I think he's praying about your troubled relationships. And I think he's saying, God, don't let, them cause the, don't let these relationships cause them to stop trusting in me. I think he's praying for your financial struggles. I think he's saying, God, don't let this pile of bills stop them from believing I will provide for them. I think he's praying for your fight with despair, and he's saying, God, don't let this dark time stop them from trusting I will lead them into the light. I think he's praying for you and your debilitating and life-threatening diseases. I think he's right now at the throne of heaven at the right hand of God saying, don't let this physical pain and this uncertain future get them to stop believing I am good. He's praying for you, church. You understand that? I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. We little know what we owe to our Savior's prayers. When we reach the hilltops of heaven and look back upon all the way whereby the Lord God hath led us, how we shall praise him who before the eternal throne undid the mischief of Satan that was doing upon the earth. 
How we shall thank him because he never held his peace, but day and night made intercession for us. In fact, you notice the impact of his prayers. Jesus understands that prayer actually does something. Look again at verse 32. I think there's like eight sermons here, by the way. He says, listen, I prayed for you, and then what happens? Pray that your faith may not fail. Read on. And when you have turned again. What does Jesus assume? He assumes that God's going to answer my prayer. It's going to work. You're coming back, Peter. We're not going to let you go, Jesus says. Right? And so he says, you're going to deny me, but my prayers are going to keep you. You understand how important prayer is, therefore. This is why I'm so excited for prayer week. It begins two weeks from today. So we're going to gather during the Sunday school hour and all gather in this room and begin our week of prayer praying. And our community groups are going to pray and we're going to give out prayer guides that we can be praying in one accord throughout the week. And we're going to meet Tuesday morning early to pray, and we're going to meet on Thursday afternoon and pray. And then Saturday, the elders are calling for a church-wide fast from sunup to sundown that you would abstain from food in order to pray. And then that Saturday night, we're going to gather as a church body and break that fast together and celebrate what God has done. And after that dinner together, we're going to come into this room Saturday night so that we might pray and praise our God. You know why? Because prayer God answers prayer. Is that not clear to you? I hope that you will be able to be part of this week of prayer. I think God wants to do a great and mighty thing in our lives. I pray that we would, we would pray. We're, we, we're, listen, we're not strong enough. Prone to wander, right? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it. And Jesus says, I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you. And what happens when Jesus, uh, Peter returns? You see that in verse 32? When you return, you're going to do something strengthen your brothers. I, I just love this about the Lord. That he says, Simon, you're going to fail me tonight, and you're going to be exposed as a coward. Everybody's going to see it. That's going to go on your permanent record. No one's going to forget that. And therefore, you'll never serve me again, right? That's not what he says. He says, after failure, you come back and do what? You strengthen the brothers. You know, the leaders in God's kingdom, this might come as a surprise to you, they're not perfect but they're repentant. You want to see a case study on that? Read the life of David. Failed and flawed men who turned back to Jesus for more grace. In fact, I would suggest to you, I shared this with the elders the other night, the last thing we need is another person rising up and saying, Jesus made me a winner and he can make you a winner too. Right? Jesus made me rich and life is easy now and Jesus wants that for you. He just wants your best life now and he wants all sorts of goodness and easiness. And I just think that's just a lie from hell. It's not true. Look at Peter's life. Look at Jesus' life. Was it easy? No. There was sin there and trouble there. And we, listen, we need people who say, I have failed, but Christ is faithful. And Christ has covered me with grace. That's what we need. You ever wonder why he even says yes to Satan? Yeah, go for it. You could have, let, I'll let you get your hands on Peter. Why does he let Satan even exist? I mean, why, I mean he's going to throw him in hell one day. Why does he continue to allow this, this being to wreak havoc upon this earth? And the only reason I think is that it is through the, the sufferings and the temptations that the devil brings that God intends to refine our faith. Acknowledge our weakness, that we might cherish God's grace, that God will even use to assure Satan's great frustration, the, the troubles and temptations he's bringing to make us stronger in Christ. I like how Tim Keller explains that he, 
God turns our failures into gold, our failures into wisdom, our failures into compassion, our failures into humility. And and because of that, Peter gets to go back and strengthen the brothers, right, to equip them. You see, Peter's pride is broken by the devil. God then forgives him and restores him and sends him to the other ten. In other words, Jesus is going to bless the other ten by sending them Peter, and I, I think you, I want you to see this. I think there's a lesson here for us that in, in the midst of your misery and trouble and difficulty, sometimes God is just going to come and strengthen you. But more often, in fact, we might say 10 out of 11 times, he's going to send you a Peter to strengthen you. He's going to send you a brother or sister in Christ with a word that he wants you to know and encouragement that you need to have, right? This is why we need each other. It's why we can't live in isolation. These 10 guys need help, and God is going to use Peter to do it, and we're going to need help. They need help because the world's about to turn on them. So quickly consider last, the disdain of the world and the grace of Jesus. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandal, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Perhaps you remember, uh, I don't know, about eight years ago when we were in Luke 10, and uh, he sends out the 72, right? And they go out two by two, and Jesus says, listen, don't go home and get a cloak, and don't, grab, don't go to the bank and get some money. Just go. Go right now, and, and you'll be provided for. So you'll find someone to house you, you'll find someone to take care of you, and all your needs will be taken care of. He says, were your needs taken care of? They answered, yes, we lack nothing. But times are changing, as you see in verse 36. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what was written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus says, I'm going to be numbered among transgressors. That is, I'm going to be hunted down as a criminal, and I'm going to be executed, and if they're against me, what's going to happen to you? They're going to be against you too. The world will be against you. And that's just not true for the disciples. Is it not, is it not increasingly true for us in America? John Stott, I think, somewhat prophetically wrote years ago, either we are unfaithful in order to be popular or we are willing to be unpopular in our determination to be faithful. I very much doubt it's possible to be both faithful and popular at the same time. I fear we have to choose. I think we do. What do you want? Because if you follow Jesus, please understand, in this world, you will find opposition, you will find widespread disapproval, you will find rejection and mocking. I think those of you who are in public school will experience this. This is what's going to happen. Your teachers, your peers, your workplace is going to happen to you, just as it did for Jesus. Please understand, it happened to Jesus. And well, they respond there in verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Does it seem to you like they've ignored everything Jesus said except the idea to go get a sword, right? Sound like men, don't they, right? That's right. Did, do we get to carry swords? Did he say sword? right? And they run out and they grab swords, right? Now, what is he saying? He's saying, okay, we're about to start wielding swords in order to expand the kingdom? No, Peter's gonna try that to, I think, to the surprise of no one in a couple hours, and Jesus is going to say, will you put that thing away, right? And you read the book of Acts. They're not spreading the kingdom by inflicting violence. They're spreading the kingdom by receiving it and loving their enemies in the midst of it. 
And so I, I think there, a application of that passage, I think it's, Jesus is saying it's, it, there are times when it's okay to defend yourself. But I think the main point is that things are going to get hostile, that persecution's coming. And they, once again, are totally misunderstood. They run to Jesus and say, we already got two swords. I, I think this is the quickest they ever obey Jesus, right? <laughs> Love your enemies, uh, get a sword, we're on it, right? Off we go. Uh, and he's totally exasperated them. Do you get that? He's not satisfied with them. Don't read the end of verse 38 with like, well done, boys. In other words, when he says it is enough, in other words, he's saying, I give up, Okay. Just no more of this. I can't handle this anymore. And, and, and here's the sad irony amidst the joking. These guys are, are ready to go kill someone the very time that Jesus is ready to be killed for them. Numbered among the transgressors. He says there in verse 37, though innocent of all crimes, he's treated as a criminal and executed. And in the midst of that, his greatest night of trial, everyone will fail him. Everyone. All will either betray him, or they will deny him, or they will abandon him, or they will attack him. And there will be no one who will stand with him. After three years of ministry, after 33 years on this life, there is not a single individual who will stand by his side in his hour of need. He will be totally forsaken. In fact, there's one more that will desert him. We'll consider this next time we're in Luke's gospel. But look down in verse 44 as we end this, this morning. And this is Jesus right after this conversation. He withdraws to pray. And you know, of course, his prayers. My father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And we get a glimpse of his emotional being in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, Jesus knelt and prayed to the Father a thousand times before, and yet here he's so overwhelmed that the capillaries in his brow begin to burst under the strain and the mental and spiritual anguish about of what is to come. And it's not the physical abuse that he is dreading. We'll consider this coming up, but it's, it's the rejection of his Father. See, everyone will reject him, including his Father, in the time of his greatest need, his, why his closest friends are literally sleeping, his father in effect says to him, son, I too will abandon you. I too will turn my back on you, just like everyone. For I will pour out my wrath upon you as you bear it for these sinners. As he bears it for you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Please understand, if there's anything that, that I would want to communicate to you, that Christianity, I believe, alone says you are not saved by your good deeds, but you are saved by the good deeds of Jesus Christ. That he would take the punishment that you have accrued for your sin upon himself. And he, God would pour out his wrath upon Jesus as a substitute. And three days later, he would rise victoriously over the dead. And now the Bible says victoriously, if you would confess with your mouth... If you would confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So it's by faith in Christ, it's by yielding your life to Christ. And even if you right now, if you would even pray in your heart, Father, I give my life to Jesus. I believe he is my substitute, the Lord of heaven and earth, who's died to pay my penalty and rose from the dead, and now I surrender everything to him. I tell you by the authority of the word of God, you will be saved. And if you would do that, even this very moment, I'm, I'm going to be down after a service. I would love to be able to speak to you and 
Um, you could talk to your friends that you brought you here or, or anyone else in this church would love to be able to talk to you about that. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, do you, I, I just hope that you see the overwhelming love of Christ to a bunch of failures like these apostles and like you and I. And if we see this is how he loves us, even in the midst of our abandonment and our rejection and our rebellion and our denial of him, would that, would that love not give you the power to become more like him? Would if you not understood what he did, would that not make you stable and humble and forgiving? Would that not make you able to withstand criticism, right, and, and, and suffering, knowing what Christ has done for you? Would that not able, uh, make you to be able to not be defensive when, when people point out your flaws and to be quick to repent, all because you understand and rejoice in the, the extravagant love that our Lord, the righteous one of God, would bear your iniquities all the way to the cross. Our Father in heaven, we are, are now and forever shall be indebted to you. We owe you everything. You owe us nothing. And all that we have that we might rejoice in today is just grace. And we praise you for it. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness for our many failures, recognizing it cost the life of our Lord Jesus. And we pray in light of our failures and the love in which we have received despite them, we would become more like Jesus. We would become servants. We would become humble. We would become those who love deeply as Christ has loved us. Do this work in our hearts even now for your glory and for our great gain, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.